Welcome back, Psychonauts. So that's what I'm going to be uh, kind of starting off all my podcast is welcome back, Psychonauts, because, well, Psychonauts is reference to a video game that I really enjoy, Psychonauts and Psychonauts 2. Um, and it's about these people that have psychic powers and travel into the minds of people. Um, so, yeah. Anyhow, in my last podcast there, we left off um, kind of hinting at parenting styles. And um, that's what we're going to be talking about today. So parenting styles, and I'm going to talk about this, uh, bad at my pronunciation, this Brumbrin's uh, research. So once again, kind of a founding father of psychology stuff. But, you know, some of these people, the information is still pretty uh, pretty relevant. Some people not as much. Freud, I'm looking at you. Coming up to him, by the way. But anyhow, parenting styles. Um, through, through his research, he said, you know, look, parenting styles are very different across culture, different groups. Um, and, and he focused primarily on European American children, um, but you know, you're going to hear a lot of s- similarities with all this stuff. So we just got done talking about you know child development and everything. So we're going to see about how the families can help to shape this. So uh, one of the first ones we're going to be talking about is the author- authoritarian families. So this is where the parents are the bosses. Period. Okay. That's pretty self-explanatory. All right, next up, democratic or authoritarian families. All right, so this is where children participate in decisions that are affecting their own lives. Um, They can make decisions for themselves, but in the end of the day, the parents do have the final say. But it's a a much better relationship kind of thing um, than just like strictly the boss or like where the parents are strictly the boss or the kids are strictly the boss. This is kind of that middle ground kind of thing. Um, this is going to be pretty similar to what you would see in most classrooms. All right, and then there's the third kind, the permissive or laissez-faire families. By the way, the laissez-faire is, is a French word. So whenever I say French word, I must say with French accents, laissez-faire, and that is how you make things French. Sorry, that is a kind of a thing I used to do with world history and U.S. history. So I'm bringing it into psychology. So, yeah. All right, anyhow. In this case, this permissive or laissez-faire families, uh, children have the final say. Parents may attempt to guide their children, but in the end, the child always gets their way. Now, these different ways um, affect different children differently kind of things. So if you're growing up in this democratic or authoritative family, authoritative, ugh, family uh, these kids are generally more confident of their own values and goals uh, than other young people that have different ones. And we generally see this coming from two different area aspects of their life. Uh, the establishment of limits on this child. So it's like, okay, you do get some freedom, but there's also limits because the parents step in as the boss. And uh, these parents generally respond to these children with warmth and support kind of thing. Um, and these children are more likely to want to make their own decisions uh, with or without advice kind of thing. Now, sometimes the parents do you know, step in. So, but just some more about these kids. Uh, the child is able to assume responsibility more gradually over time because they are able to be given more um, ability to make decisions stuff. They are not denied the opportunity to exercise judgment, uh, which is often the case in authoritarian families. Uh, and they're not given too much responsibility too soon when they're not able to have it um, or control it, I guess, in permissive families. This child is more likely to identify with their parents um, who love and respect with them as well. So, like, they identify with them and their values and stuff. Um, and, you know, if you have this authoritarian family, um, then the parents, you know, they, they treat them as incompetent or maybe just indifferent towards them 
And through their behavior, this is the Democratic, sorry, uh, through these these children's behavior towards the child, uh, sorry, parents' behavior towards this Democratic child, mix mix that one up a little bit, um, the parents are really presenting a model uh, for them. So it's basically just good role models, and they try to model responsibility, cooperative independence, that whole cooperative thing, and, you know, just basically growing up um, as, as a person that, you know, they're, they're trying to imitate their parents and all the good things that they, they do. And that's the idea behind it. So this Brahmerman I, guy I can't pronounce, he obviously was a big fan of these democratic families kind of thing. So, um, and, and we'll kind of move on. You know, I, I tried to cover a whole bunch there. Um, and, and we are moving into social development. So, you know, how they um, interact with the rest of the world, maybe not just their parents, but also inter- interacting with their parents. Um, but a lot of lot of theories, a lot of psychologists, well, a lot of what they have to say is that um, we have distinct steps or a series of steps that we use for our social understanding and development in the world. And we're generally learning these rules of behaviors. This is called socialization. So we're learning these rules of behavior of, of our culture um, as, as we grow up and, and experience it. So we live with other people. Um, we learn as we lo- live with other people, interact with other people, we learn uh, what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior. And this is not as easy as it sounds because some social rules are considered very important and are inflexible, like don't kill people. Okay, that's pretty extreme. But other rules, there's, there's more room for kind of you know, some leeway and into like gray area, individual decision. Think about like uh, lying. Okay. So if someone says, oh, does this look, make me look fat? It's like, no, no, it makes you look husky kind of thing. You know, like that's a lot nicer way of saying that. You don't want to say, well, yes. I mean, I hope you don't say that, but it's like, so do you lie? A white lie. Sometimes they call them like this little tiny lie. If it's for the good, it's okay, I guess. Um, and, And that's where, you kind of understand those different social situations and stuff. You have this happen all the time in school. If a, you know, a student uh, peer or someone says something that is like, uh, you find a way to kind of say, oh, maybe you shouldn't say that without like, you know, totally going after them. And they, they start to learn what is acceptable and not acceptable. I mean, that's why we have cringeworthy moments in our life. Those are learning moments. Always fun, of course. And I've been hinting at this next one for a little while here. And that's Sigmund Freud. So I'm going to preface this, and I'm going to say it again at the end, but I'm going to preface it when I start. A lot of people do not put much faith into Sigmund Freud and his psychosexual development theory. Um, but like I said, this is kind of, you know, the history of psychology and like how we got here and where we think, you know, take his stuff with a grain of salt. I mean, he's been around, for, he endures for a while for a reason, so... Um, but let's let's dive in, shall we? Sigmund Freud believed that all children are born with powerful sexual and aggressive urges. Urges, and he basically said that you know in the first few years of life, boys and girls have similar experiences. Um, and then we're going to get into some later stages here. But these early stages are kind of universal based on sex. So the first stage of his is the oral stage. Their erotic pleasure are um, is being obtained through the mouth, uh, usually sucking at their mother's breast. And then weaning a child, so like, oh, they're no longer nursing, they're going to formula or food or whatever, is the first 
um, bit of frustration and conflict that a child experiences in their life. They're not getting what they want. And that's called the oral stage of development, followed by the anal stage of development. I'm going to do a recap of all these here. So afterwards, or later on, the anus becomes the source of erotic pleasure. He's all about this erotic pleasure kind of stuff and the psychosexual stuff, right? Um, and this is the anal stage. And toilet training um, the is kind of what teaches the child to curb um, the uh, freedoms that they have of just going to the bathroom whatever they want in their diaper or nappy or whatever you want to call it. And this establishes social control kind of thing. All right, this moves into the phallic stage. Um, and this is, you know, ages three to five, and I will get over the other ages here in a little bit. I'll recap all this. Uh, children discover the pleasure that they can obtain from their genitals. At this stage, they become extremely aware of the difference between themselves and members of the opposite sex. So think of little kids during this time, and they talk about uh, vajingos and peepees and stuff like that. Um, so this is the phallic stage. Um, and Freud believes that and this sounds really weird, um, but and that's I'm I'm kind of face palming here as I say this. Like I said, a lot of stuff that he talks about is just not relevant anymore. Uh, but according to Freud, Freud, a child becomes a rival for the affections of their parent of the opposite sex, and I, I guess I, there's a stage in everyone's life where it's like um, a young girl wants to marry dad, a young boy wants to marry mom, kind of thing. And this is where you get the Oedipal complex, or Oedipal, my pronunciation, and the Oedipus complex. So the Oedipal complex um, refers to basically these unconscious sexual desires for the opposite sex parent and hatred of the same sex parent. So boil it down to kill dad, marry mom. And the Oedipus complex is the opposite. It's the same thing, but just reverse the thing. It says kill mom, marry dad. And these generally take place at an unconscious level, according to Freud. All right, so then we get into, and this kind of goes along with this, then we get into identification, uh, where the child starts to adopt the values and principles of the same-sex parent. So this is kind of after these Oedipal and Oedipus complex. Um, and then we move into the next stage, the latency stage. And this is like ages five to six. So sexual desires are pushed into the background, and the child starts to explore the world and learn the, the world around them. So this is when they are, you know... The opposite sex is icky. Um, boys and girls have cooties kind of thing. So they just like, oh, I don't care about the opposite sex. I don't care about sex at all. Be I mean, this is ages five to six. I really hope they're not thinking about sex, but Freud, whatever. So anyhow, they're like, ah, oh, let's explore the world around them. And this is the sublimation. And the idea of sublimation is the process of redirecting sexual impulses to learning tasks. So it's like, oh, all that energy I put into the genital stage, the anal stage, the oral stage, and so forth, and Oedipus and Oedipal and all that, uh, I will learn the world around me. But then... We see this thing called adolescence and puberty, the genital stage. One derives as much satisfaction from giving pleasure as receiving it. And he says that, you know, ah, we have entered in this, this area of like, oh, I am seeking out a mate and, you know, dating and all of this kind of stuff. Um, and he says, Freud says that personality development is essentially complete as we enter adolescence. All right. In the end of the day, 
very few psychologists believe the sexual feelings disappear in children. Um, and, you know, like, they're still aware of all these things. Um, they're still, it's still a component of their life. They're not maybe as overt as, as everything that Freud says. Basically, bottom line is Freud is outdated kind of thing. Um, I'm going to do a little recap, but just please know that, like, as I say a lot of these things, I add a lot of inflection, and I was trying to uh, give you a little bit of sense of sarcasm, facetiousness, and stuff, because, like I said, Freud is not looked on highly today. But anyhow, like I said, just uh, that was what applied to the last bit and to this next bit, because I'm just going to go over it one more time with you here. Um, so, um, oral stage infants, pleasure seeking focus on the, um, you know, on the mouth ages, you know, birth, like 18 months, approximately anal stage pleasure seeking is kind of functions around elimination and everything. That's like, uh, you know, a year and a half to three years, approximately kind of thing. Then we enter into the phallic stage, uh, pleasure seeking focuses on the genitals, the, uh, three to six years, three to five years, somewhere in that range. And then the latency stage. And this is the uh, sexual thoughts are repressed, uh, more social intellectual skills, and this stays the way up until puberty. And then when we get to puberty, that's the genital stage um, where we are renewed interest in relationships with the opposite sex and all of that. So once again, Freud is the only way to say it. All right, and then we, we are slowing down here. We're almost done, so we're going to talk about the cognitive development approach. And this is Freud and Eric Erickson, another you know founding father kind of thing. And they stressed, kind of together, identified this, stressed the emotional dynamics of social development. Because remember, Sigmund Freud still said the social development happened between these stages and stuff. But their theory suggested that learning social rules is very different from learning how to, like, say, ride a bike and speak a language. And um, modern day, a lot of psychologists disagree. They say that social development is simply a matter of learning and imitating. Uh, we learn from others, just like we learn to speak language from imitating others. We talked about that at the beginning of part one of this podcast. So we're going to talk about kind of the learning versus cognitive theory here. So learning in theory implies that a child is essentially passive. They are a piece of clay that is being shaped by experiences that are going on. So people who administer the rewards and punishments, you know, usually adults and peers and stuff, um, they serve as models and they are the ones that are doing the shaping. The cognitive theory, on the other hand, is the child is this uh, is the the shaper, and that uh, the Jean Piaget, uh, Piaget uh, that I mentioned earlier, and others argue that social development is the result of a child acting on the environment and trying to make sense of their experiences from this environment. Um, you'll see a lot of this in the games that children play. So when children play games. I mean, I mean, think about it. If, it. if a kid is just kind of left up to their own demise, they're going to come up with games to play. And they spend a lot of time making rules. And it, it's probably kind of like almost like a safety mechanism because if you can learn the, you know, the rules and you establish that there's importance in agreeing on a structure for group activities. I mean, think about any sport or group activity you've done. You need to understand the rules surrounding them. And a child can generally relax and enjoy themselves um, and not feel rejected as long as they know the rules and don't break the rules. Think about trying to join in in a sport for the first time. You go to a playground game and you, you're watching it. You can't just jump in and if you do something wrong, it's like, that's not how you play. That's not how you do it because you got it wrong. So this um, rules um, and games are a way for a child to learn aspects of adult life or just following rules and, and hopefully a non-threatening way because I mean you think about it 
your whole life is going to be governed by rules that you have to to follow and a lot of this comes from that role taking of or, or you know have you guys ever grown up playing uh playing house um, or playing other games and stuff, you assume different roles. And by assuming these different roles, you are able to experience different points of views. Uh, you know, cops and robbers, you, you assume the role of, you know, just and right and so forth, and the robbers, you know, what is bad, and you get punished for doing something bad. And that's the idea of role-taking. And I'm going to kind of leave you with, you know, the kind of the idea of cops and robbers and stuff and, like, when you make these decisions on right and wrong and stuff. So I'm going to leave you with a little story here. We're going to talk about um, the different stages of development with this story and how it applies to moral development. So here is a little uh, a moral story for you or moral development story. So here's the story as it goes. A woman was near death from cancer. And there's one drug that might save her, and it's this uh, radium. So like I said, I'm just kind of making this story up here for you. And there's one druggist in town or one pharmaceutical company, whatever, in town that has recently discovered this, this radium or form of radium or whatever. So the, the druggist um, is charging or the pharmaceutical company is charging $2,000, 10 times what the drug costs to make. And the sick woman's husband went to everyone he knew to try to borrow money. But he just couldn't get enough together, um, you know, to, to get it. And he said, I got about half. So he says to the drugger, says, look, my wife is dying. Can you please sell me the drug cheaper? Um, and I will pay you the rest later. Here's half now. I'll pay the rest. And this druggist person, this pharmaceutical company says, no. So the husband got desperate, broke into this, this pharmaceutical company, the man's house, whatever, the store, and stole the drug for his dying wife. Should the husband have done that? And why? So at different stages of your moral development, you will respond differently. So there are six stages, and there are three different levels. So the first two stages are all part of the same level. Three and four are part of the same level, and five and six are part of the same level. So stage one, which is part of pre-conventional level, all right, so this is obedience and punishment. And the, you know, it's, it's all about self here. And the example is, it's okay for the husband to steal if he doesn't get caught. So it's just, just all about you and stuff, and it's like, well, just don't get caught. You're okay. All right, and that's the pre-conventional level, and that's stage one. Now, stage two, also pre-conventional level, okay? All right, so this person is, they, they call them an instrumental relativist, all right? And so it's no longer just about themselves, about themselves getting caught. It's about the immediate family. So it's like, look, all right. It's not just about me. I can't get caught. Now, I'm stealing this drug because it helps, or this person is able to steal it because it's, it's helping their wife. It's their immediate family. It's okay to do kind of thing. This is how they justify. All right, and this moves into stage three, and this is a new level. This is the conventional level, and this is kind of like the, they call this orientation the good boy, nice girl kind of thing, and this, this expends, extends out. So we had self earlier, then we had immediate family. Now we have extended family. So now it's like, well, I want to be a good boy or I want to be a nice girl because it's not just about me. It's not just about my significant other. Now it's about my extended family. So the example is his in-laws, his in-laws will respect him more if he steals this drug for their daughter, his wife kind of thing. And that's the conventional level. Now that moves us into stage four, which is also still the conventional level. And now we're, we're understanding law and order kind of thing. So we're moving out to that there is, you know, it's not just the extended family anymore. We're, we're moving. It's self now, then it's immediate family, then it's extended family. Now we're understanding that there's a society. So this is a self-serving view 
of society. So there's still now we're we're introducing a society, but it's still kind of self-serving. So, uh oh, it's illegal to steal. All right, so it's like we're you know I shouldn't do this. It's legal to there's there's a society around me kind of thing that I am part of. And that moves us into stage five, our last level, the post-conventional level. So this is the social contract. And you might remember social contract theory that we've talked about in the past uh, with world history and U.S. history. But this is a much more interactive view of society. It's not just like kind of closed, like, oh, it's illegal to steal. So now it's, well, we need to understand the society and, you know, that maybe some people aren't doing the right things in society, that there's nuances in society. So here we are. It's okay to steal because that druggist guy is charging way too much. And then finally, stage six, this is the post-conventional, still the same level, it's that last one, but the last one here is saying, look, there is a universal ethics principle. This is that they say that moral development is essentially like we understand everything. There is universal ethics principle. We have a balanced cost and benefit analysis of the self and of society. And it says, look, we need to look at this from a hypothetical situation. We need to understand everything in a bigger scale. If the situations were reversed, would the druggist steal from the husband? And it's kind of, you know, that kind of that moral question that you have to decide yourself and you have to analyze and understand. And you can use your past views um, to kind of get to where you are now, but just understanding everything about the world around you and, and all the ramifications in the long run. So anyhow, that's where we're going to leave off. So we will pick up with adolescence in our next one. So talk to you soon.